we're starting a new series today looking at the servant songs of Isaiah. These four sections of prophetic or poetic prophecy um, that we find toward the end of the book. Um, And they paint a picture of this mysterious character who Isaiah, or God through Isaiah, calls the servant. Now, I know uh, if you've been around with us long enough, you've been in the prophets before, and uh, they can be a little confusing, especially on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m. when you've only had like four cups of coffee instead of your usual 10. Or is that just me talking about myself? Um, But here's all you need to know. If you want to understand through this series what the servant songs are all about, you need to know two things. You need to know what it feels like to fail and what it feels like to be disappointed in God. God did not breathe out the servant songs for a bunch of spiritual all-stars who were just crushing it in life. Um, He didn't give the servant songs for a bunch of winners. Rather, uh, the servant songs are less like a pat on the back and more like a defibrillator. Uh, The original audience is Israel, the nation of Israel, in exile, a group of people whose life and identity had been totally and completely irrevocably shattered. Remember, Israel had been given this special authority, and uh, they were the people of God, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, sent on a special mission uh, to display God's character throughout the world. But they failed uh, miserably at this task. They were originally called to be God's servant. Um, Actually, Isaiah sometimes refers to Israel as his servant, as God's servant. That's why this can be a little confusing sometimes. But they failed miserably instead engineered their own destruction. And in 587 BC, uh, the Babylonian army broke through the walls of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, the center of their worship. He murdered the royal family, and they carted the people off more than 500 miles to the city of Babylon. And the second half of the book of Isaiah is God's response to a set of really hard questions. And I bet that everyone in this room has asked almost all of them at some point or another in their life. Has God abandoned us? Was God powerful enough to save us in the first place? If so, if he was powerful enough, why didn't he? Is God good? Does he care about us? And I... I think these are questions that we all ask in our dark places. Um, Jean-Paul Sartre was a French philosopher at the beginning of the 20th century, and he essentially said that in the absence of God, uh, our, the human condition is characterized by anguish, abandonment, and despair, um, that we are utterly on our own. And so when things get hard, uh, when you're knocked on your back, What you need to do is push through and define yourself against the void. By the own strength of your internal character, you need to find some way um, to fix your own problems. Rely on your internal resources. And this has kind of become something of the American myth uh, that that I think that we're constantly being told to believe in our culture. I saw a, a sign somewhere in Pittsburgh, I've actually seen several of them, that they have, if you've seen these, they say they have like different values. Um, And the one said like grit, and it was advertising grit. You need to have more grit. Now, given Pittsburgh is a pretty good city for grit, I guess. Um, 
But the basic idea under that is that when you are in trouble, when you are in need, when you are down and out, what you need is more grit to amplify your own individual merits. And that will get you over the tough times. But God says, not so. What Israel in exile needed, and likewise what you and I need in our moments of greatest failure and disappointment, is not more determination and more grit. That's a lie of the devil. What we need is a hero. We need a hero. Israel failed totally and irrevocably, and their only hope was for God to send another one, another person to save them and to restore them. And when the Bible talks about sin, it's, it's not talking about uh, how you and I are flawed or Im- and imperfect, right? Have you ever heard people say, like, well, nobody's perfect? Like, it's, that's such a cop-out, man. Do you understand, like, who you really are? Like, you're not the, co- the flawed cosmic protagonist in your story. I just hate to say it. There's a commonality, a common thread in all of your problems, and that common thread is you <laughs> and me. Um, we have failed totally and irrevocably. Uh, the biblical understanding of, of you and of me is that we were given this beautiful life to be stewards of. There's a way of living in the world that is in harmony with God and with our neighbor and that we made an utter shipwreck of it. We failed totally and irrevocably. And so we need another to save us and restore us. I took my son, Sam, for a walk the other day out in the snow. And you know how it is right now if you've uh, stepped in it with big boots. Uh, there's like a thin layer, now there's a thin layer of ice, and then there's a layer of powder, and then another layer of ice that's thicker, and then another layer of powder, and then at the very bottom there's ice. So it's just like this deep, crunchy, horrible mess. Um, and we came to this baseball field, and we were trying to cross this big, long field, and I'm trudging through with my boots, and Sam has this really cool, like, it almost looks like an 80s-style 80s ski outfit, with matching boots and jacket. He looks really cute. But like, uh, he's waddling along, like, uh, what's his name from the Christmas story? Um, And he's waddling along behind me, and he gets to this really deep snow, and he just can't make it. And he looks up at me and goes, Daddy, carry me. Um, And so I picked him up in my arms, and I carried him. And I thought, that's it. That's how it is. We can never understand the gospel until we recognize that we cannot make it on our own. So, um, if you're killing it this morning, if you're just awesome, uh, you might not find this sermon very useful. (sighs) Um, But if you need mercy and help, um, if you're utterly exhausted and depressed, uh, if if the past year has brought you more than enough loneliness and grief for a lifetime, and if, if frankly, uh, you look back and after all these years, you don't really like the person that you've turned out to be, um, I think that the servant songs of Isaiah are going to prove, prove to be profoundly helpful to you. I know that they are for me personally. Um, this morning, I get to introduce you, I get the privilege of introducing you to this servant figure. Um, and I think you're going to like him. Uh, 
we're looking at Isaiah 42 and really zooming in on the first four verses of Isaiah 42. And they say something profound about, about our hero, the servant's authority, about his mission, and about his character. And I want to treat each of those. So first, the servant's authority. Look at verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So the picture we get is of a leader with absolute God-given authority. Uh, This is how, uh, you may not know it, but this is actually how God introduced King Saul in 1 Samuel 9. This is how God introduced Abraham as my servant in Genesis 26. This is how God introduced Moses in Exodus 14. This is how God introduced David in 2 Samuel 3. Behold my servant doesn't mean like, hey, this guy's going to help you out. This means behold my representative leader. Behold my king. So this king is sent by the Lord. He's upheld or kept in power, um, not by stabbing his enemies in the back, but by the power of the Lord by Yahweh. He's chosen by the Lord, and he's delighted in by the Lord. His boss is crazy about him, and the Lord's spirit is upon him. And this this servant's authority extends to the nations. It says the coastlands wait for his law. That's the very ends of the earth. Every king in the ancient Near East had a territory, and their authority extended throughout that territory, but no further. There were lines of delineation. Once once you cross the river, that's some other king's territory. Your authority does not extend there. But this servant king, his territory extends to the very ends of the earth. It's a universal rule unlike anything else in world history. Alexander the Great's kingdom was not this big. Napoleon Bonaparte's kingdom was not this big. Rome was not this big. The United States was not this big. Sorry, Great Britain was not this big. And this servant's mission is very clear. See if you can spot it with me. Verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Any guesses? Anyone want to venture a guess on what this servant's mission is? (laughs) Justice! His, his, His mission is to establish justice in the whole earth. Now, the Hebrew word for justice here is mishpat. Say that with me, mishpat. Um, It means something more than just right or wrong. Um, An Isaiah scholar named John Oswalt says that mishpat, or justice, in its broadest sense, involves a societal order in which the concerns of all are addressed. So, um, unlike our modern visions of justice, both on the right and on the left, Um, mishpat, real justice, isn't founded on ideology. Um, It's not communism. It's not capitalism. It's not even democracy. It's, It's the true, righteous, just rule of the true king who has been enthroned. So, the Bible says that true justice requires 
a leader with a certain kind of character. That's, that's a hard pill for our society to swallow. True justice requires a leader with a certain kind of character. Look at verse 2. I love these verses. The servant will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So first, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. He's not aggressive or boastful. He doesn't try to dominate the room. He doesn't put others down in order to lift himself up. He's dignified, and he treats others with dignity. And then we have these twin images of the bruised reed and the faintly burning wick. Who here has ever seen a reed before? A reed is like a, a hollow twig is the best way that I can describe it. Um, they use pieces of reed uh, as like the reed, I guess, on a woodwind Im instrument, right? Um, and uh, Robert, you're a musician. You would know something about this. Um, but they would hollow them out in the ancient world. They would make flutes. They would make pens. Um, they would take a bunch of them together and make thatched roofs. They made all kinds of things with reeds uh, because there was a certain structural integrity to the reed, and it was very light. But the problem is that if something came along at the midpoint and chopped the reed, then it became internally damaged, and the reed is no longer good for anything. You can't fix it. You can't patch up a reed. Might as well just, there are a dime a dozen, so just toss it out and get a new one. Break it off. And the faintly burning wick refers to an oil lamp that's run out of oil. It's totally depleted, and it's no longer burning bright enough to be of any use. And if you've ever used an oil lamp before, you'll notice uh, what you have is like cotton or a material like that that soaks up the oil, and the oil burns, and the cotton doesn't burn quite as quickly. It's very, it sort of remains uh, inside, and the, the oil is burning around it. But what happens when the oil runs out? Guess what burns then? The cotton itself, the wick itself becomes the fuel. I'm wondering if you've ever felt like a smoldering wick that, uh, that what you're required to expend is no longer consuming the energy that you're bringing in, but it's actually consuming you. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's a difficult situation with a family member. I don't know. But it's easy in these times to feel like a smoldering wick. And what do we do with those? You just snuff them out. It's the most logical thing. So how does the servant deal with the bruised reeds among us? How does he deal with you when you're internally damaged? When you're unstable and vulnerable and buried beneath a mountain of shame? How does the servant deal with you then? Does he come with the wagging finger and a harsh voice? He will not. No, he will not break a bruised reed. He will restore it. He knows how. And how does the servant deal with you when you're a smoldering wick, when your faith is fading and you're just burned out, man? He will not snuff you out. There's this beautiful line in The Lord of the Rings uh, where 
It says, the hands of a king are the hands of a healer. And by this, the true king will be known. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. That's what this servant is like. So Isaiah says, you'll know God's true king, his servant, by his authority, by his mission to bring justice, and by his character, his compassion, his outrageous, illogical compassion. Now, Jesus of Nazareth was a tectone. Uh, he was a town fix-it guy. From the middle of nowhere, like the, the butler PA of the ancient Near East. I love saying that. Um, he never, so far as we know, he never took his ministry beyond the borders of Israel. Um, he never commanded an army. He didn't conquer the known world. He didn't even overthrow the Roman occupiers in Jerusalem. Uh, he disappointed everyone in a sense. And yet, he said things like, Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Matthew 28, 19, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he claimed the prerogative to forgive people's sins. That's something that only God can do. This is a man who clearly understood himself to be some kind of king. And he was on a mission to announce the arrival of some kind of truly just kingdom. Mark 1.14, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark are, Repent and believe the Gospel because the kingdom of God is near. Uh, he, Jesus was always talking about this thing called the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying that God's mishpat, his just rule, is here. And what does it look like? Um, well, if you were to follow Jesus around as he uh, went from town to town throughout northern Israel, went from Butler to, I don't know, where's near Butler, um, you'd notice a basic pattern to his ministry. One, he showed up and healed people and cast out demons. Like we saw in our gospel reading today, he healed a man with a withered hand. Um, he's refer he reversing this pattern of chaos and decay, and instead he's bringing out freedom and renewal in these towns. Two, he taught people where there was confusion. He brought knowledge and wisdom and understanding of God. And then three, this is like my favorite one. Somehow he manages always to get invited to a meal with some rich dude. Um, maybe it's Simon the Pharisee or it's Zacchaeus. Uh, and then, and so he's like getting ready to go over dinner. And then he brings all the lepers and outcasts from the town to dinner with him. Like, he brings party crashers. Um, and so you see them all, like, you, seriously, you read through the Gospel of, of Luke, and Jesus is always feasting. He eats 19 meals in 24 chapters. That's an astonishing amount of food. Um, and it's all making this, pro I mean, look at, look at the, you know, uh, what's Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John. He makes a ridiculous amount of wine. It is ridiculous. Um, and it's this profound point that in Jesus' kingdom, the rich don't exploit the poor, and the poor don't unite to take down the rich. What happens in Jesus' kingdom is that they all sit down in the presence of Jesus because they're just in love. 
And they share together in God's abundance. And in the process, they become friends. And then you don't have rich and poor anymore. That's mishpat. That's God's justice. And at the center of it is the character, the person of Jesus. He brought healing and life to outcasts and lepers. He welcomed strangers. He confronted unjust authorities. He didn't mince his word. And he gave his life for his friends. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and heavy, are heavy laden, and I will give you, give you rest. Take my yoke upon, me and learn, upon you and learn from me. For, and this is, the, this is the only place you'll find in the Gospels where Jesus describes his own internal state of affairs, his own character. He describes, he says, this is what I'm like. For I am harsh and demanding. No, sorry. Um, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And in me, you will find rest for your souls. For my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, I want to submit to you that Jesus of Nazareth was, is, and always will be uh, the crucified, risen, and exalted servant of the Lord that Isaiah was talking about 500 years before his time. Uh, Jesus alone has the authority to command your allegiance in all of your life. Jesus alone has the just judgment to bring sanity to this world right now and sanity to your own internal state of affairs, your own soul, your own family. And Jesus alone has the character and the compassion to see you where you really are and to restore you. Uh, so Isaiah saw Jesus. He saw this vision, and, and God gave him a vision of Jesus in the darkest, in Israel's darkest hour. And I want to say that it's February, man. It's like the hardest month of the year. February feels like the death zone for, like, you're climbing Everest, and you know, like, I can only survive here for so long. It's, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's a dark hour, man. But you know, here's my prayer, is that at the beginning of Lent, um, you would see Jesus too. Let's just, let's just take 40 days and let's see Jesus together. Um, we had a friend in college uh, who was so dedicated during the month of Lent that she decided she was going to have solidarity with the third world and eat only beans and rice for 40 days. And you know what happened? She got scurvy. Um, I feel bad laughing at that, but um, I don't want you to get, don't, don't use Lent as a time to self-flagellate. Use Lent, Lent is not meant as a time to self-flagellate. It's a season of repentance, which means it's a season for turning around and seeing Jesus, your Savior, who's ready to welcome you into open arms. It's a, it's a time for starting that relationship with him that you've been putting off all year long. So my prayer is that you discover the joy with, that comes with knowing that you actually have a hero, that he actually loves you, he delights in you, and it's his joy to save you and restore you.
may that be our greatest joy today. Amen.